This is Pastor Matthew Castro at Central Church. I'm the adult ministries pastor, and you are listening to Attributes of God with Dr. Jim Ullman. Good evening. Good to see you. Um, We're going to be talking about the goodness of God tonight. So um, let's let's have prayer and we'll get started. Father, you are good. It's, it's remarkable to me how, how infrequently the Bible actually affirms that, but you are good. And as you are good, then uh, we may look to you for all good things. The problem is we don't understand what good is, and so we need to understand that. So we ask for your help today as we think about your goodness, and especially in times when we can't see it. For Jesus' sake we pray, amen. Amen. All right, uh, so uh, there, uh, uh, Jerry, do you have those notes? Yeah. Uh, is there anyone who wasn't here last week who'd like a set of notes? Uh, um, and uh, we'll get that going for you. When we start talking about the goodness of God, the goodness, in fact, of anything, uh, one of our problems is the word is really flexible. There are f- 46 different senses for the word good in the Collins English Dictionary. Uh, I don't know whether that shocks you, but um, good is a word that slides all over the place. Um, so you, you, your, your uh, wife fixes a dinner, and she said, how was it? And you say, that was good, or you say, uh, that, that, was, that was good. It's obvious that there are two different, at least two different senses. The one of them will get you shot. But, but uh, so what do we mean? Well, I've given just a sampling of the senses for good in uh, the dictionary. Good is something that's admirable, something that's morally excellent, suitable, um, beneficial, sound or whole, kindly, rich and fertile, so good soil would be rich and fertile soil. Something that's good is valid, honorable, safe, competent, and a whole lot more. Am I making sense to you? So... When we talk about good, what, uh, when, uh, God being good, what do we mean precisely? Um, the definition of good has been in contention between God and humanity since Genesis 3. We have been debating this issue since Genesis 3, and we're still debating it in the newspapers and on the news every night. Uh, so what is good? Um, the first pair claimed the right to define it themselves instead of leaving the definition to God. Um, If if I were to go to an art museum, as I have a few times, I have no background in art. And I'll say, well, that's a pretty picture. (laughs) That's a pretty picture, too. I don't know what that is. That's That's just a mess. And that's all I could do. And someone will say, that's not just good. That's 
great art. And I go, okay, fine. <laughs> but as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> uh, I, 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 one picture looks pretty and another looks pretty, and that's good to me. Yes? But my opinion about art is not very significant because I have no training in what good art really is. Does that make sense to you? Um, my favorite music, <clears throat> if it ain't Tchaikovsky, don't play it. Uh, if, it, if, if, it, if, it hap if it came out before Tchaikovsky, that's fine. But after Tchaikovsky, nothing's, nothing's worth listening to. <laughs> uh, um, got to, got to per perform um, in the orchestra for Tchaikovsky's first piano concerto, and it was a thrilling experience, frankly, honestly. Uh, and I think I have a fairly well-tuned taste for music, at least classical music. But modern music, I don't really have a, a well-tuned taste for at all. Modern being after 1890, okay? <laughs> so so uh, in everything that we think is important, we leave the word, we leave the definition of the word good to those who are our authorities in the field. Yes? Are you with me here? So a good football team, a good candidate, a good um, meal, anything that we call good, we, we in some measure defer to authorities on those things. A good meal is a meal that I enjoy. Yes? But you might not think what I enjoy is as good as I think it is. And so... We don't have specific uh, authorities to give us definitions for good food that is good tasting food. But in most areas of life, we look to authorities to tell us what is really good. Yes or no? Yes. All right. Is that a language problem? No, it's a problem. It, it's the problem of language. It's not a language problem as such, but it's the problem of language we, going back here to the preceding slide, uh, when you have 46 different senses for the word good, then which of them is right? No, no, I'm asking, of the 46 senses, which is, the, which is correct? All of them, and that's my problem. See, because I can talk about, as we will say in a little while, I can talk about, um, a good cook, a good liar. Yes? So, so what do we do with this? And this has been our problem since Genesis 3, and it remains so. Um, it, 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 it is somewhat obvious. I don't know whether it's perfectly obvious to everybody in the room, but it's somewhat obvious that what was good in... Uh, Genesis 3 is contrasted what, with what is evil. Yes? So it's not, in this sense, contrasted with what's ugly as such. It's contrasted with what's evil. So it's a moral category in Genesis 3. The problem we have and, and are confronting in our day powerfully, forcefully, is who gets to define what is good morality? Um, was listening to... a a, uh, 
video. The Hoover Institution, do you know this group at all? Uh, they do some really good interviews. There's a guy on there that he is so knowledgeable, and he always plays himself down as he does the interviews. But uh, he's obviously deferring to the authorities that he's interviewing. But uh, Tom Holland, a novelist. I didn't catch the second man's name. Uh, both of those men were British. And the third man was Stephen Meyer, who is an American. Um, I don't even know the, the, the field that he's in, in science. Um, but he is, he, is, uh, he is a believer. Tom Holland was flexible on what he would talk about as, uh, for Christianity. But the whole point of the interview this afternoon that I was watching uh, was what impact has Christianity had on the Western world and, and how are we to assess it? And Tom Holland, who, uh, who Stephen Meyer said, uh, Tom Holland has not expressed his personal attitude toward Christianity. He just says, Christianity is at the root of everything Western. You, you can't even think of being Western without having Christianity involved in it. Um, but the, the middleman, whose name I have forgotten, um, was an atheist, and he was, he was not um, reticent to say so. And he was also saying, yes, but Christianity is the root of Western civilization. And, um, so they, that was quite a discussion that was going on. I only heard about half of it because uh, it was time to come to church. But the, the issue for them was the good effects of Christianity. One of the men said, notice the word good there. Who, who defines good? One of the good effects of Christianity was, do you know, I, most many of you will already know this, do you know where hospitals got started? Yeah, the church. From the church. Do you know where orphanages got started? The church. The church. Um, we, have, we have allowed the state to take it over. Um, say, and universities. Uh, but the universities were formed on a, on a little bit shaky basis. <laughs> uh, but, the, but the large issue, folks, is... Um, from Genesis 3, who gets to define what's, right, what's good? Um, if God does, then there are things that are morally evil. If we get to, there are things that are morally evil still. But the standard is fundamentally different. What's the standard if I get to define goodness? It's whatever I like. Whatever is good is what I like. What I don't like is evil. Yes? Are you, are you with me here? Uh, so from the very beginning, the issue, from the very beginning, almost the first words of the, of the Bible, the question is, is, who gets to define good? So as we said, we can call nearly anything good. He's a good cook. She's, she has a good mind. He's a good liar. <laughs> uh, so what do we mean, though, when we say God is good? And I'd like to turn to Psalm 73 to, to start talking about the goodness of God. Psalm 73 is a somewhat striking psalm 
in that, it starts so positively, but turns so dark so quickly. So Psalm 73, 1, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But in my Bible, there's a Psalm 73, 2. And in Psalm 73, 2, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. What do we do with this? Um, how, how is God good to Israel, but not to Israelites? How is God good to Israel, but he lets the wicked prosper? Am I making sense to you? Say that define wicked then? In that case? Well, um, that's that's a broader issue than I want to get into right now. But um, here's an oddity that I, I'm not prepared to explain. I, I can't come up with any reason for this to be the case. Goodness is rarely ap ap applied to God directly. In the Old Testament and in the New, it's directly applied to God. God describes his words and works as good. But he doesn't, he is not described as good very often. Yes, sir. Is this not the basis of, our, of all that you hear about subjective truth, mm -hmm. my truth? Yeah, that's right. That way we get to define mm -hmm. it. We get to define it. Comes, comes from Genesis 3. <laughs> uh, I am the captain of my fate. Um, so what, let's look at Psalm 73 for a minute. This is a lament psalm. But normally, lament psalms have uh, uh, praise in them. But normally, it's just, it's just a, a segment at some point, often at the end of the psalm. Psalm 73 is a little different. Uh, we looked at verses 2 and 3. Let's pick it up at verse 4. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. I want to point out to you folks that when Nebuchadnezzar was looking for good-looking young men, you remember this Daniel chapter 1? <laughs> we don't translate it this way. But the Hebrew says fat. A fat man was a, was a wealthy man. Okay? So... Um, they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their heart... Yeah. Well, you've seen people like that. It's, it, this, this is a horrible picture from our point of view, but folks, if, if everybody that was somebody in our culture looked like this, we would view that as beautiful, handsome. Are you with me? Yes, no. Yeah. Right? This, beauty is a culturally defined, a defined thing, and 100 years ago, it was substantially different than it was now. 130 years ago, it was a substantially different concept than it is now for us. So there, this sounds horrible to us, but what can I do? Um, their eye, verse 7, their eyes swell out through fatness. Their, their hearts overflow with follies. 
They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues struts through the earth. Uh, there is in Canaanite poetry, there's an image of the God of death who has his, his mouth in the heavens and his chin on the earth. He swallows up everything. And these are people of death. Uh, verse 10, therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? If God's out there, he doesn't care. Look, we're getting away with all of this stuff. All that law of Moses you talk about is irrelevant because look, God's giving us the very blessings that he promised you for serving him. We don't serve him, but we're getting all the blessings that, that you say he's going to give you. And here you are, verse Back to verse 2. As for me, my feet uh, had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant. Um, verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain, I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Mind you, this is a psalm that begins... Truly, God is good to Israel. Um, all in vain, I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. My text of verse 16 ends with a comma. Um, and verse 17, I think, is very important. Now, folks, I wrote a paper on this in my study years, and my professor said this interpretation is, not, is, is wrong. He's with the Lord now, and he knows better. <laughs> but... <laughs> So let's, let's go back. Let's go back to verse 16. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you slip, set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Now let me stop there. Um, this is going to pose for us the problem of evil that we're going to have to address. We're going to have to figure out What's going on with evil in a world created by God? Why, why does he allow so much to happen? It's just incomprehensible. But Psalm 73 is a good step into this. Um, the nice thing, the wonderful thing about Psalms is, is Psalms is quite realistic. <laughs> um, the psalmist, this is attributed to Asaph. I uh, don't know who Asaph is. Uh, he was the 
father of BSAF, I guess. <laughs> so, but uh, I don't know who Asaph was. I don't know when this psalm was written. I don't know the circumstances of it. All we can infer about the background of this psalm is what's in the psalm. So in some sense, the, the sanctuary of the, law, of the Lord was, was active and functioning. Um, so when he says in verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Um, I'm going to come back to that before we're done. But I want you to see that the Psalms acknowledge the fact, two facts that are realistic facts that we must embrace, both of them. One is, God is good. And the other is, the wicked often prosper. I, I, I can't deny that. It is the case. Yes? Uh, yes, Bill? Is that because, um, I'm not sure who said it, it might have been Matt, um, the punishment for sin is more sin. Yeah. So those who are wicked become more wicked. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He gives them he gives them all the rope they need to, to hang themselves. That doesn't answer why. Yeah, it doesn't. Vicky. Well, you know, we talked about with our government and stuff that a lot of times God and we saw it with Pharaoh, a lot of times God will let somebody come to power and be raised up, you know, just to like he did to chastise Israel. Mm -hmm. The the interesting thing is, um I and and I I can't very, get, very well get away from Romans chapter 1 on this. Romans chapter 1, 18 to 32 is an important passage on this subject. Um, the judgment of, of sin is more sin. Uh, and it's not, as we've said, how many times have we said this? It's not that God takes perfectly nice and good and kind and loving people and turns them into monsters. It's that he removes the limitations, the hindrances that people feel to doing evil so that they can do more that they really want to do in the first place. We, at one time, we turned to Judge, uh, Genesis and looked at the story. I think it's in Genesis 20. I'm, I'm hunting in my brain to see where it is. Um, Genesis chapter 20 may be the passage. Um, if I can get these pages to turn. Here we go. In Genesis 20, uh, Abraham is at uh, Gerar among the Philistines. Uh, so verse 1, from there Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he uh, sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God, and here it is. His, here, these two verses or so are critical to this whole discussion. God uh, came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you're a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. And Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an in innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him, here's the key verse. Then God said to him in the dream, 
Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. If Abimelech had been under the wrath of God, he would have turned him over. Do you see the point? So the, the amazing thing, and, and one thing that we can say about the goodness of God, is that he restrains much evil in human life. The evil that we see is shocking. Uh, it's lamentable, breaks our hearts. But it's not as bad as it could get. That's the reason, I believe, for the tribulation, to unfold how really wicked the human heart is, to take off the restraints and let humanity do exactly what it's always wanted to do from the beginning. And worse. Uh, so uh, what God is doing now, even now, however you view the events of our times, and politically I'm not at this point in, in the least interested in making any comments, but just the morality of our time, when you look at it, it's the goodness of God that it's not worse. Um, a time is coming when it will be worse. But the way God judges in pre present wrath, when you talk about the wrath of God, I don't know that we talked about this um, in our discussion of the wrath of God a week or so ago, but... There is eschatological wrath and there is present wrath. Eschatological wrath is wrath to come uh, when he destroys all the wicked and, and as Revelation describes it, consigns them to the, to the lake of fire. Um, but present wrath works by turning people over to more sin. Uh, this psalm hinges, I believe, on verse 17. Everything depends on verse 17. And the interpretation I gave to the psalm in the paper that my professor thought was uh, not correct. Uh, I, I, I don't remember how he described it, so I, I wouldn't want to attribute more than he would have said to, to it. Uh, he, I think he might have said, I don't think I'd have gone that direction. But um, Asaph may well be one of the Levites, uh, singers, and if that's who he is, um, he went to the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Um, what would he have seen at the sanctuary of God? Sacrifices? Yeah. Anything else? Maybe yeah. Today, maybe not so much what's good is that things aren't, that used to be bad, aren't bad anymore. Well, but see, he's gone to the, to the sanctuary and, and there's something there at the sanctuary that caused him to change his opinion. And that's what I'm asking for. He saw events that he couldn't control? Well, not in the sanctuary. I don't know that he did. I don't know that the, the glory of God, Shekinah only means the, the abiding glory. I don't know that it was ever visible outside the Holy of Holies except on those rare occasions. Um, is he thought to be a prophet? Say again? Is he thought to be a 
I couldn't even tell you because I don't know that we know enough about him to say yay or nay on that. Yeah. The first thing that you would see going in, no, he wouldn't see the Torah either. Um, unfortunately, I wish he did. But <laughs> yeah. I was just thinking. This uh, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at Howard back there. I'm sorry, Vicky. Until I went to the sanctuary of God, I don't think he's talking about the tabernacle or the temple. I think he is. That's the only place that would be a sanctuary of God in, in the Old Testament period. Well, I'm thinking more in, in terms of uh, being under God's wing. Yeah. Going to God for protection. If that were, if there were specific information about that in Psalm 73, I'd go that direction, but I don't see that. So all I see is a man who is probably a Levite. He's going into the sanctuary of God, and what does he see? He sees the altar of burnt offering. Why is it there? And someone said, "Was it you, Vicky? The sacrifices? The yeah." What, 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 would he, what, what is happening? What happens at the, the altar of burnt offering? They, they get mutilated. Animals, animals are put on there and burned. Uh, Leviticus 1.4, uh, every morning and every evening you make a burnt offering. Leviticus 1 describes that in Leviticus 1. Um, these are entirely burnt. And in chapter 1, verse 4, it says, uh, it shall be accepted for the offerer in his place to make atonement for him. So your text will say something slightly different, but the Hebrew will permit this concept of in his place. So it's there, there are animals being offered for sin every morning and every evening. And if it's a Sabbath, it's two in the morning and two in the evening. Same thing if it's the first day of the Feast of Passover, the last day, uh, Feast of Trumpets, uh, the, the New Year Festival, the, uh, I'm sorry, the Feast of Weeks, the New Year Festival, the Feast of Trumpets, and, and especially the Feast of Tabernacles, first and last days. What if one of those days, see, th these are all Sabbath days, by the way. So anybody who says to you, you have to keep the seventh day, and that's all you have to keep, is not telling the truth, because all of these are Sabbaths, as is the sabbatical year, and the Jubilee year, a whole year of Sabbath. Are you with me here? So anybody who says, got to keep Sabbath, they will say, oh, but, but that's not really part of the Sabbath law. Why? Because the same language is used, so get away from me. <laughs> uh, the, the point I'm making is, when the Sabbath fell on a holy day, that is, first day of Feast of, of Unleavened Bread, then there were three burnt offerings, one for the day, one for the, for the Sabbath day, and one for the Passover day. Does this make sense to you? So you're, you're slaughtering bulls all the time. Um, preachers do a little offering up of bulls themselves, but not in the same way, and perhaps not with the same effect. Yes? When he says he enters the sanctuary, then he understands the Yeah. Is he talking about these wealthy, wicked people? He yeah. realizes their destiny. Yeah. So he's, he's saying that all their gains are short term. Mm -hmm. And by being in the sanctuary, he realizes there's a so, short term. So I may be suffering now, but that's not my destiny. Right. 
They may be prospering now, but that is their destiny. Well, that's the thing. God doesn't let evil get, nobody get, get away with evil. That's true. But he lets him get away long enough that you, it looks like it. And that's what Psalm 73 is about. And that's the thing. In our arrogance, yeah. we try to box God into yeah. time frames. Yeah. You've heard somebody say, and I've even said this here, uh, somebody said to God, how long is a million years to you? He said, it's about a second. He said, how much is a million dollars to you? He said, it's about a penny. He said, can I have a penny? He said, in a second. <laughs> God's, God's uh, t- time schedule is not based on even centuries. It's based on millennia. Yes, sir. Is he intimating that there is uh, a judgment, eternal life? Yeah. And yeah. Salvation. Yeah. The There's, yeah. Uh, so the Old Testament definitely has a view of life after death. It's not heavily uh, treated in the Old Testament, but there is clear evidence of that. Jacob died, and he was gathered to his father's. Uh, Old Testament scholars say, well, that's, that's simply being buried in the family tomb. No, that was not for 40 days <laughs> before he was buried with the fathers. So gathered to the fathers, what does it mean? Um, and as one of my colleagues at the seminary used to say, if Israel didn't have a view of life after death, they were the only people group in the entire Middle East that didn't have one. Everybody else had one, so why would Israel be the one that didn't? Um, So Psalm 73 is setting up a problem. How do I solve the problem of, uh, personally, how do I I deal with the problem of righteous sufferer and the wicked that prosper? And so he goes on. Verse 18, truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. Brothers and sisters, this is a psalm that began, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. God is good to Israel. And so far, I haven't seen anything in this psalm about what God does for this man who writes the psalm. The only thing he can hold on to is what he knows about God in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the hard time he's facing. Don't give up in the darkness what you learned in the light. So he goes on. How are are they destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly without without terrors or by terrors, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, And when I was pricked in my heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, now he comes to the things that are solid and that he knows. Nevertheless, I am constantly with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. And there it is again, brother. Um, My flesh and my heart fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. So what do you do when 
you have learned that God is good, but it doesn't seem to be good to you. One resort for a certain personality type, of which I am a partaker, is depression. Uh, and unfortunately, the, 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 the really ugly thing about depression for anybody who's not depressed is you get awfully self-centered and all, all you can talk about is your troubles. Um, we, I, was, I had been preaching in a church that I was paid to be pastor of um, in 19, what year was that, Jan? 1980, 80, 1980. It was the summer when uh, Dallas had uh, 60 or 70 days over 100 degrees in Oklahoma City. We were in Oklahoma City area. We had 40 or 50, and it was hot. It was one of those hot days, and the, the most useless job to me, almost the most useless job around the house to me, is mowing the lawn. In, in, that, in that climate, I don't even know what those weeds are that have the three, the three prongs that stick out of them. You mow, and with two hour, within two hours, they're already up. What's good of mowing? Good grief. And, just... It's useless. And I, I had, to, our, our house was not moving. We were trying to sell the house to go back to Dallas and I could finish my coursework. Uh, and, and it was hot. And the, and the, and, and the, the, the uh, sewage had backed up. Do you know what Orangeburg pipe is? I didn't either. <laughs> but whoever had put in that sewage system and put in Orangeburg pipe. It's three-ply three tar paper. That was our sewage line. Brilliant move. Oh, yeah, it was very cheap. Um, I, didn't, I didn't have that done. It was somebody who had the house before us who did it. House had 15 holes in the roof. You could feel the, the, the winter wind around your ankles in our bedroom. Uh, this was a, and now I have to mow the blooming lawn. And so what I learned from my grandfather was to count my steps. I don't know why I still count my steps. Um, I don't mow the lawn anymore. Thank you, Lord. May it, may it always be. <laughs> but but uh, um, I was counting my steps, and I had just preached Psalm 103 a week or two before that day. And I had said, when you're troubled and you, you, don't, uh, you don't know where to turn, go back and rehearse all the goodness of God. And I thought, oh, good grief. Now i gotta, I got to listen to my own sermon. <laughs> this is terrible. <laughs> have to apply your own sermon to yourself. And I, I started out, what am I going to praise God for? Well, I'll start in Genesis 1. What, what can I praise God for in Genesis 1? Thank you for making the sun that, that's so hot today. <laughs> Thank you, God, for making the green grass that I have to mow. <laughs> I was just stomping through the yard. It was terrible. It was a horrible scene, I'm sure. <laughs> but, you know, I didn't get to Abraham. I didn't get out of Noah before I was over all that. I have, been, I have faced depression for a, a substantial portion of my life, probably half my life. Um, and I didn't know that this would be relevant there, but it turns out to be. 
Folks, when you, when you are depressed, you're awfully focused on yourself and your troubles instead of focusing on the God of your troubles. In Psalm 73, the psalmist is, taking, is, is giving us that advice. So, verse 21 to 23 again, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked, uh, pricked in my heart, I was brutish and ignorance, ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. And he comes back to eternal truths, truths that are sure no matter your circumstances. How did your shack, my shack, and Abednego and a bungalow go to, <laughs> go to the fiery furnace? Do you think they were fighting all the way? I don't need that. Uh, that's right. The God who, do, yeah. They were praying all the way. They were praying all the way. And I'm sure there was some fear there, not knowing what God would do. But uh, when, when the king asks for a report, do you remember how, he, how the report went? I see four men walking around in the fire. Um. They are holding on to eternal truth. Not, not looking at their circumstance, but looking at eternal truth. Daniel in the lion's den. Yes? So, verse uh, 23, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put to an end everyone uh, who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord, my God, Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. The, the, the wonderful thing about this psalm is that the psalm doesn't say that the troubles have ended. Sometimes the troubles do in the middle of the psalm, but not always. And here, this is called a closed lament because there's no answer given. There's no result given. Look at Psalm 22 for just an instant. We won't spend any time there. Um, although my heart lies in Psalm 22 in a lot of ways. Um, I dearly love this psalm. Um, and of course, it's important to us because Jesus quotes from it. Uh, and the New Testament alludes to it in the crucifixion of Jesus. Um, what was I wanting to turn here for? Oh, um, let's pick it up at verse 14. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me, you, who is you? God, you lay me in the dust of death. What verse was that? I took my eyes away. 15, thank you. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. 
They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now, there, there is in verse 21 a translational problem. The ESV, I think, gets it right. So verse uh, 20, uh, uh, verse 19 begins the petition section. Lament psalms are normally petition psalms. They normally have a, a, a petition, a, a, a prayer. It's a prayer asking God to do something for them. So here, uh, verse uh, 19, here comes the petition section. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. Now, now we might say, now, Brother David... The Lord Jesus is never far from any one of us, amen? For in him we live and move and have our being, amen? You amen. That so well. well, I know. <laughs> uh, the, and that would be true, but there are times when God withholds the clear, obvious sense of his presence, and we feel absolutely abandoned. So David says, but you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O oh, you, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my life, my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. And your text says something like, uh, answer me, rescue me. That's a possible translation, but I don't think it's the best. Uh, the ESV, the Hebrew will absolutely uh, permit this interpretation that the ESV gives. And here it is. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. And the rest of the psalm is praise. There are commentaries on the book of Psalms that treat this as two completely separate psalms because obviously there's no unity between 1 to 20. Um, what verse did we stop at? Uh, 1 to 21, and 22 to 30, whatever the last verse is. There's obviously no unity, because the other, the first part is so gloomy and hopeless, and the last part is just raving in, in joy. Unless you translate verse 21 the way the ESV does, and Hebrew clearly will, perm will permit this. Are you with me here? There's nothing hindering this translation. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. So this is called a, I'm sorry, Psalm 73 is an open lament. There's no answer. This is a closed lament. There is an answer. David, being a prophet, gets the word from God directly. Bill? Verse 16 through 18. Yeah. Is that David talking? Yeah. It's, it's not it, exactly like I know. Uh, you know something, brothers and sisters, I've, I've told you this before, but God builds patterns in the Old Testament so that we will know what to expect from him. Yes? Something happened in David's life that he could describe poetically this way. And it turns out to be a precise reference to what's going on in Jesus' crucifixion. Um, so my... my the, the, so what God has done in the past is a model and a promise of what he will do in the future. But he's too creative to do the same thing the same way twice. Uh, I, I've only said that a few times, so I repeat it one more for those of you who don't remember it. Um, um, David, I'm sorry, Asaph in Psalm 73 
is on the verge of giving up the goodness of God that he confessed in verse 1. But never give up eternal truth for what is the, the present experience of your day. Uh, in the midst of those times, we are called to go back to what we know of God. What, what kind of person is he? What kinds of deeds does he do? What has he done in the past? You will say, but that was in the past. What good is that to me? Because what God has done in the past is a model and a promise of what he will do in the future. You see why that's so important? So I can go look at the heroes of the Old Testament. I can look at those who were, who were slain in the Old Testament. Turn to Hebrews 11 in that regard. We've looked at this before, but it's worth looking at again. Hebrews 11 we know to be the faith chapter of the Bible. And in uh, the first uh, 35 verses, he talks about all the good things God has done for people of faith. And down to verse 35, in the middle there's a shift. Uh, so verse 35, women receive their, their dead back by resurrection. The ESV leaves out a a, a conjunction here. I would put the word but uh, there because it's in Greek and I think it ought to be there. But others were tortured, refusing to accept the release. Why? So that they might receive a better resurrection. Better? Is that related to the word good? <laughs> yeah. Right? So there is a good that they can have by going through what they must go through. And they don't lose sight of that good that God has defined as good. It's like similar to Romans 8, 28. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Yeah. Indeed, Romans 8, 18, uh, on, back, on down to verse 28. But, but 29 explains what the good thing is. Okay, I don't know why that is coming on, but uh, we'll turn it off and go ahead. That's supposed to be, uh, well, I don't know what happened there. Use Kabibble. There it is. That was supposed to be, okay. Um, where, uh, Hebrews 11. Um, women received their, their dead back by resurrection. Some were tortured, not refusing the release because they were looking um, so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Uh, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. All these, though commended through faith, did not receive what was promised. I would add, I would add one more here, uh, just slight change. My text says did not receive. That could imply that they got it after death, that heaven is, is what was promised. It's not the point. The point is the resurrection. They have not received what was promised. Neither have you. And, and we are the 
we are the descendants in faith of these people that we're reading about in Hebrews 11. How can I put up with those hard, hard times? And if God is so good, why does he let people suffer, his own people suffer so much? Well, go look at the cross and then ask that question again. Uh, if he will do that to his son to save you and me, then what suffering will he spare us to make us like his son? If we knew the glory of Jesus, it would be easier to bear the, the suffering, but it would take less faith. Uh, so the goodness of God um, there are some basic, well, I've already gone through this material, so I'll skip by it. Psalm 84. Do you have any questions immediately as, as we turn to Psalm 84? Um, these, this is a psalm of the sons, sons of Korah. Don't know who that is either, for sure. <laughs> um, Psalm 84.10, a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Um, <laughs> we drive down Houston Levy coming down to church each, each time we come. And there are all those fantastic houses over there. I tell Jan, you know, I could live in that house. If they give it to me I, and pay the taxes, I would, I would live in that house. <laughs> uh, uh, what does Jan say? <laughs> she, she knows me well enough. She's just, she just rolls her eyes and, and, and keeps quiet. So, uh, but uh, there's an old song that we sang here. I, I, Jan and I attended a church called uh, um, on uh, Perkins. Uh, Evangel. Evangel Bible Evangel Bible Church. We attended that for six or seven years before uh, when we first came to Memphis. And there was a song that we sang there. I'm satisfied with just a cottage below, a little silver and a little gold. But in that land where the ransomed will shine. I've got a gold one that's silver lined. I don't know whether that's true or not, but, but folks, what is awaiting us in the future is so grand and glorious that the only way to describe it is the way uh, the New Jerusalem is described in Revelation 21 and 22. How, how do you describe what's indescribable? Uh, the glory that awaits us is beyond anything that we can imagine. So Psalm 40, 84, 10 and to 12, a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness for the Lord God is a sun and shield. I want to unpack that phrase for you just a moment. Um, th this is just fascinating. One of the things that we had to do um, in, our, in my last years in, in uh, coursework was we had to read some, uh, some literature that was from the ancient Near East, some of it in 
in translation of other of it that we had to translate ourselves. But, but part of that literature was the Amarna tablets, and I know you've just been thinking about the Amarna tablets recently, wondering more about them, wanted to know. But the Amarna tablets were found in a, a site in um, Egypt called Amarna, thus the Amarna tablets. <laughs> uh, and they are written in a, a language that's Canaanite. It's a close relative of Hebrew. They are written by kings of the various towns in Jerusalem, in, in uh, what then was known as Canaan. Uh, a king, you have to understand what a king is in that culture. It's a city mayor. Okay, that's all it is. He, 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 he didn't have a lot of power. He just got his little people group and that's it. But they are always warring with one another. They, they were vassals of the pharaoh in Egypt. It probably was during the time of Tutankhamun, uh, uh, where they didn't pay much attention to Canaan. And the kings kept writing back to the, to the uh, pharaoh, we need help, please come, because so-and-so is encroaching on the territory my lord the king gave to me. And among other things they would do at the beginning of a letter, these are all letters, this is fascinating to me at least, among other things, they would give titles to the king, and one of the titles was my son and my shield. So son and shield are royal titles of God. <laughs> are you with me here? He is, he is the emperor who rules all kings, and he is my shield because he is the one. This is what God told Abraham. Do you remember this? I am your shield. Your reward is very great. You remember this? So, so God is taking Abraham, he's reminding Abraham that he has taken him as a vassal. He's going to protect him. Uh, the Pharaoh never showed up for the folks in Canaan, <laughs> at least in that period, because things were too topsy-turvy in Egypt to be able to go up there and do anything. But when the psalmist says, for the Lord God is a sun and shield, the Lord bestows favor and honor, that's what... That's what overlords do. That's what a great king does. He dispenses benefits and favors to those who are in right relationship with himself. So Psalm, 40, Psalm 84 is very much in that field of thought. And uh, here, the sons of Korah, Korah is, is one of the singer, another one of the singers in the, in the uh, in second, first Chronicles, one of the singers assigned in the uh, temple. Uh, so he, he, the Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. But who gets to define what's good? Not me. Because what's good for me is um, bluebell homemade vanilla. That's good. Um, that's good. Cheesecake. cheesecake. I haven't tried cheesecake. I like I like vanilla so much. I, I, I Jan likes strawberry better. I like strawberry, but I, I would choose homemade vanilla. So, say again. All in favor, say aye. But here, it's not I who get to choose what's good. God gets to choose what's good. And you know something about God's sense of good. It's actually accurate. <laughs> and 
when I see what he does, that's good. I think, boy, that was really good what the Lord did. Look at what God did in that circumstance. Each of us has had some experience of that. Mark 10, 18, Jesus says to uh, the rich young ruler, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. What is Jesus saying? He's asking, are you calling me? That's right. That's right. So uh, that's why when I say, when I meet people and, they, and I say, how are you doing? And he said, I'm good. I go, well, Jesus said, no one is good but God. What are you claiming for yourself? <laughs> but I, I, it, it's a teachable moment. It, it's, it's also uh, marginally uh, funny. But <laughs> Acts 10.38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. As our Psalm 73 citation points out, the righteous often do suffer and the evil do often succeed. But as Psalm 73 closes, and we've pointed this out, for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. If you've made God your refuge, what do you need a refuge from? Trouble, Trouble the evil that's outside. Uh, the, the, the sad thing for us in those times is that the evil can still touch us. The good thing for us is that it never actually harms us because all of it works together to produce the likeness of Christ in us. The harm is the impatience waiting for God. Yeah, and yet God understands our impatience. He understands the pain that he's putting us through. And he is not unfeeling in it. I, we, did, we did look at Isaiah 63, 9, I think last week. Uh, and in Isaiah 63, 9, in all their afflictions, he's talking about Israel in the wilderness, in all their afflictions, he was afflicted. I was stunned when I first read that verse with understanding. I had read it several times without understanding. But what? God experiences some, uh, the, the pain that, that I'm going through? Nobody understands my troubles. I've said that in my mind. I've never said it out, out loud. Or maybe I... Maybe I have. Jan would know better than I. But, uh, but God does. This is a long quotation continuing um, from Psalm 73. So where then is the goodness of God? Well, we've already begun to answer that question. What we must do is turn to the problem of evil. Um, yes, Vicki? I was just thinking about something you said that... You know, like our good only centers around us, and we're yeah. good, but God's good, even if it seems harmful, is always good universal, correct? Yeah, it turns out to be good for the body of Christ to have people. Well, folks, folks, would you like to have been Elizabeth Elliot in Central America in the 1950s? No. 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 But if you've heard Elizabeth Elliot speak, you were delighted to have the opportunity. Yes? 
Yeah. 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 Would you would you want to go through what Johnny Erickson went through? No. But have you heard Johnny Erickson speak? Yes, sir. You look at the apostles. I mean, they raised the dead. They did miracles. And yet, at the end of their lives, they died horrible martyrs. Yeah. Uh, martyrs death. And so, but, but us, 2,000 years later, say, I, I mean, you know, what they do is horrible. <laughs> but then we look and we say, they didn't break. They maintained the faith despite the threat of death and all of death. That is good. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's right. And of course, the question comes did they not ever have dark nights when they're wondering, asking God? And of course, the answer is yes. But that was not what actuated them, that's not what motivated them. And so we are the heirs of this, and this is for us to embrace. So the problem of evil, one of the most famous contemporary examples of an objection to theism. Uh, from the point of view of physical evil, can be seen in the example used previously from the, uh, this is, I don't know where I got that, from the plague by Albert Camus. I read this several years ago, and I thought, this is a moving, mo a moving story. Um, the logic may be summarized as follows. Either one, do you know the story of the, the plague? Most of you probably don't. There's no particular reason you should have read the, the, the book. But in the book, it's a story that happens in 1949 on the north coast of Algeria in a town called Oran. Uh, I guess it's bubonic plague that breaks out. They're not sure what's happening. But the, 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 the novel focuses on three characters, uh, Dr. Ryu, uh, Father Penelou, and... Cotard. Cotard is kind of a low life in the town, but the, 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 the officials are on the verge of locking up the city and quarantining it completely. They're still trying to figure it out. Um, Father Penelou sees the, the plague coming, and he says, he preaches to the people, the reason the plague has come is because you're so sinful, and God is, is judging you for your, for your sin. The irony is in the story that Father Penelou dies himself of the plague. So if they were dying for their sin, then what about him? Um, Dr. Ryu is a physician. He, is, uh, he chooses to fight the plague, and there are others who join him. There are about three or four other major characters, minor characters in the book, who join him in fighting the plague. Uh, Cotard is, as I say, kind of a low life in the town, but he found a way, even after the, the city was locked up, he, he found a way to get in and out, and he would bring in food and sell it at inflated prices, bring in other goods and, and sell it at inflated prices, and he was profoundly wealthy. The end of the story, I don't, does, do, do you remember the story at all? Did anybody read it? Read it? I don't recall whether Dr. Ryu died. I think he did die in the plague. Father Penelou died in the plague. Cotard survived. And so in the, in the story, um, 
each of these characters is, is faced with this set of propositions. Either one must join the doctor and fight the plague God sent for men's sin, taking Father Penelope's point of view, or else he must join the priest and not fight the plague, which is right. It gets worse. But not to fight the plague is inhumane. And to fight the plague is to fight against God who sent it. Now, since Camus wrote the book, he can make the world the way he wants. Okay, so this is the, the story world, not the reality world that you and I would think of. Hence, if humanitarianism is right, if, if Dr. Ryu is right, then theism is wrong. Humanitarianism is right. It is right to fight the plague. Would you agree, would you agree to that? It's right to fight the plague. And it is right to work to alleviate suffering. Therefore, theism is wrong. And this comes from Norman L. Geisler and Wenham's book, uh, The Roots of Evil. Uh, what do we do with this? Well, they end their book with a couple of things here that I want to share with you. Let me see. Um, yeah, a couple of lists that I want to share with you. First, there are 10 reasons for physical suffering. Think about them as we go. Some physical evil comes to us directly from our own free, free choices. Second, some physical evils come to us indirectly from the exercise of our freedom. Yes? Third, some physical evils come to us directly from the free choices of others. Fourth, some physical evil comes to us indirectly from the free choices of others. Fifth, some physical evil may be a necessary byproduct of other good activities. Uh, which of these would you want to rule out of the world so that there wouldn't be physical evil? There are five more. Some physical evils come upon us as the result of the choices of evil spirits. Unfortunately, I don't know when they're involved and when they're not. Seventh, some physical evils are God-given warnings to greater, uh, against greater physical evils. Eighth, some physical suffering may be used by God as a warning about moral evils. Uh, ninth, some physical evil may be permitted as a condition of greater moral perfection. And that's what we've just been talking about in Romans 8 and other, other places. And tenth, finally, some physical evil occurs because higher forms live on lower forms. Uh, do you really want to give up the, the meatballs that we ate tonight? Why doesn't God, if he exists, stop evil? Um, he has some very good reasons for, uh, uh, for not stopping all evil. First, Evil men don't really want God to intercept every evil act or thought, only some. Evil men want to stop your evil acts and thoughts against them. They don't want their evil acts stopped. Second, continual inter and boy, this this is really insightful. Continual interference would disrupt the regularity of natural law and make life impossible. 
Everyday living depends on physical laws such as inertia and gravity. Regular interruption of these would make everyday life impossible and a human being extremely edgy. Third, it is probable that chaos would result from continued miraculous intervention. Imagine children throwing knives at parents because they know they will be turned to rubber and parents driving cars through stop signs knowing God will create crash protection air shields to, to avert any ensuing collisions. Undoubtedly, God would be frequently uh, caught in dilemmas. The sadist would be thwarted in his self-actualization. What's more important to our day than self-actualization? And this book was written probably 30 years ago. <laughs> the sadist would be thwarted in his self-actualization if every time he intended to torture or kill someone, God intervened. What evil, uh, which evil does God then choose? The evil of preventing the self-actualization of the sadist or the evil of the misery that the sadist imposes? It is of note that such a dilemma of intervention exists in biblical theism. The Bible recognizes this. Here we see the belief that God allowed Jesus to suffer and die on the cross in order to save man. One of the soldiers even calls upon Jesus to perform a miracle and save himself. In this case, performing a miracle to save Jesus from the cross would have prevented man's salvation. Result one, then, if God were to prevent all evil acts from occurring, he would have to interfere with the full exercise of free choice, leaving us with a world something less than fully moral if it could be considered moral at all. And result two, in a world of constant divine intervention of evil actions, all moral learning would cease. If there are no consequences to actions, we would not grow more immorally, immorally. Men would never learn by the evil consequences of bad choices. All physical evil is either a consequence, a condition, or a concomitant of free choice. Further, physical evil is not desired by God, but is used by him nonetheless to occasion the full exercise of free choice and to maximize the opportunity for attaining the greatest good achievable in a fully moral world. 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any, and this, is, this verse has been fundamentally misunderstood, any who, any human being. Now, the Lord is long-suffering, uh, is not slow uh, to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward who is you? Believers. Believers. I know that because of the way Peter introduces his letter. To those who have received a like precious faith with ours. So he doesn't want any of those people to perish, but that all should reach repentance. We've already read Psalm 73, 16 to 28. But, but the, the point is, we haven't solved the, I, I don't think that I've solved the problem of evil, not in any way. There, there are other things that we would have to address to, to, uh, to come up with something that would be approximately an answer to the problem of evil, but ultimately it, it's a mystery that remains in the, in the heart and mind of God. 
But the reality is, folks, that for us to grow in a sinful world, to grow spiritually in a sinful world, it means that we're going to grow cross-grain to the world. And growing cross-grain is always difficult. So um, suffering is our lot. In the midst of suffering, God knows our suffering. He is not uncaring and unfeeling. He's afflicted too, which stuns me. I'll never get over being stunned by that verse. But it also is coming to us because he knows the goal that he has for us, and the goal that he has for us is so transcendently great that we can't even imagine it. And we are willing to put up with a few minutes, hours, weeks, days, months, years of pleasure instead. Let's close with prayer. I, I think it's time to stop, so let me close with prayer. Father, thank you for your goodness. We don't understand it. Obviously, we don't understand it. We don't understand anything really about you. You've, as, as we've said before, you talk to us in baby talk so that we can have some true thought about you, but you are even greater than our best conceptions of, of you that we've ever had. Father, hold us fast to yourself. And in the times when suffering seems to be the only thing that we can see, the, 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 the daylight outside the window mocks us because there is so much darkness. Uh, turn us back to the real light, not the light of this world, but the light of the world that is Jesus. Cause us to, to remind ourselves of who you are, what you've done, to go back and rehearse, even starting in Genesis 1, as I did that day, rehearse the goodness that you are. And just very soon after that, Father, I didn't even get to Genesis 11. You know, you remember that event. And I was out of my anger and my confusion. Um, Turn us, therefore, back to yourself and let let your own being, your own nature be the subject of our contemplation to turn us away from our sufferings to the greatness of our Savior. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. You have been listening to Attributes of God with Dr. Jim Allman. If you're new to Central Church, you can check us out at centralchurch.com. You can get more information about our ministries and our classes. We hope to see you back.